Well, it is a joy to be with you. Uh, my wife and I are happy to be here on many fronts. We don't have our five kids, so that's nice. It's about three degrees Celsius in Washington, D.C., where we're from, so the weather's very nice. And more importantly, um, it is a joy to be with your church, and it is a privilege to share God's Word with you and sit under the authority of God's Word. Um, do have to say, today is my wife's birthday. Yeah, actually, technically it's not, according to our time, but we're, going, we're celebrating it today. Uh, but she is a wonderful lady, my much better half. Um, I'm not sure where she is, but hopefully she's somewhere in here. Um, as I see all your faces, uh, and as I consider the work we're doing, we, we're, we live in Arlington, Virginia, which is right outside Washington, D.C. Uh, I was reminded of Galatians 3.28. It says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so not only all the different nations and ethnicities represented here, but we are seeking to do the same thing uh, in our area, which is preach the good news of the gospel to those around us. And, and it is a privilege and a joy that we are all one in Christ, that Jesus unites all of us together. And so it's in that unity that I can come and we can uh, commune around the Lord together. So let's, let's pray one more time, and then we'll jump into this passage. Father of all mercy and grace, we thank you. We thank you that, as we have sung about, that our sins have been nailed to the cross. We thank you that your mercy is bigger than our sin. And we thank you for the many blessings that you have given us, whether we feel them right now or not, Lord, your, the promises of your word are, are true. And one of those blessings is that you speak to us through your word, that in your word there is life. And so God, I pray that your spirit would enliven and enlighten our, our faith and our minds and our hearts this morning. And that as we consider your word together, that we would, we would find good news here. And that it would cause us to worship you more and love you more and follow you more. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So a little over 10 years ago, I was sitting in my house and keyboard in front of me, and I was trying to write a song. Trying to write a song. My dad is um, a songwriter and a musician, and, and so I tried to carry on that tradition. Uh, unlike him, most of my songs were terrible, and so I, I was trying my best. Uh, there was a conference attached to this particular song that I was trying to write, and so there was a bit of a deadline, and I had a lot of trouble with the chorus of this song, because if you're an artist, you're familiar with uh, the reality that there's so many things you could say, and the challenge is trying to figure out exactly what exactly needs to be said in, in this part. Now, the words that I finally came to were, were pretty simple, um, and they are just two lines. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Jesus is my life. Now, these 
words in this song, All I Have is Christ, by God's grace, uh, has resonated with a lot of people. And, and it's sung all over the world. And I'm, I'm humbled, humbled by that. It's also an interesting experience being the writer of that song because if I'm honest, and I assume I'm among friends so I can communicate this, the real, living in the reality of those words, the goodness of those words, is a challenge for me. It can be a, a challenge. And so it creates this interesting situation where the thing you're known for in many circles is the thing that you actually find difficulty doing or knowing. It's like being from a country but having only visited there once or twice. And, and it's, it's odd. But I do find this in, in my own heart and in my life that there's a communication. I've written these words that communicate the joy and satisfaction of knowing that, that all we have is, is Jesus. He's, he's our life. And yet, many times in my own life, I find that I want or need a few other things in order to really be happy, in order to really be joyful. It's, it's hallelujah, all I have is Christ, of which I do believe that, and yet it's also my good works. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ and my good reputation. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ and possessions, money, a house, good kids. Maybe for you it's a husband or wife, your parents' approval, a job, influence, land. Far too often my security and my joy and my hope are determined by things other than my relationship with God. In our story today in God's Word, we meet a man who is trying to discover how to have joy and security in his life. And so we are going to look at this passage of Scripture to help us understand what Jesus calls us to. Now this story, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's it's one of a very few that are told in three out of the four Gospels. It's also in Luke 18. It's also in Mark 10 in addition to this, which means that it's, it's important. There are not many stories in Scripture, in the Gospels, that are told in more than one. And yet this is one of them. Now, if we get into it, Matthew begins by telling us that, that this was a young man, probably in his early 30s. And Luke tells us that he was a ruler, which could mean a lot of things, but at the very least, he was, up, he was in the upper middle class of, of society. We also know that this young man was of significant means. He was rich. And so thus we get the title, a rich young man or a rich young ruler. Now, this rich young ruler is going to teach us a lot. So we're going to break it up into four sections I'll say these again, but a question, a response, a sobering truth, and an amazing hope. So we're going to walk through this. First, a question. If you look at your Bible, verse 16, it says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? 
Now, Mark, in his account of this story, actually relays that this young man ran up to Jesus and knelt before him. So it seems like there was some sense of of desperation coming to Jesus and purposefulness in asking him this question. What must I do to have eternal life? In other words, what must I do to be saved? That's a good question. What must I do to be saved? He seemed to recognize that despite his wealth and despite, as we'll see, his moral integrity, he knew something was missing. He wanted to be sure. He wanted to be secure. And so he figured, there must be something else I must do. There must be something. And so then, our second point, Jesus responds. He responds in verse 17. It's a somewhat odd response. He says, he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. If you notice, Jesus didn't immediately confront this man. He didn't necessarily answer him in the way that he wanted. He He, like a kind, patient teacher, invites the man to reflect upon his words. He he questions why the man would need to ask about the good deeds required for eternal life. Because the Jewish answer to this question was simple. Keep the commandments that God has given you. Keep the good commandments that the good God, Yahweh, has, has given you. Goodness and eternal life are gained by keeping the commandments. But this man wasn't satisfied with that because he, he responds with, well, which ones? He needed to know. He needed to know exactly, are you saying all of them? Are you saying some of them? I, I just want to be sure which ones in, or, in order to make sure that, that I have eternal life. Which, which ones? And so then Jesus responds. He responds by quoting five out of the ten commandments that Moses received on Mount Sinai. And then he adds an additional one, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, taken from Leviticus 19.18. Now if you notice, all of these commandments that Jesus says are interpersonal. They're how we are to relate to other people in, in our lives. How we relate to others. If you or I were to meet this person, we would walk away thinking, that's a nice person, right? They're they're kind, they're generous, they don't lie, they honor their father and mother. Now this man responds to Jesus, verse 20, all these have I kept. What do I still lack? Now if you're a Christian, and you're arrogant like I am, you jump into this story and you're thinking, really? Really, you have kept all those commandments completely, fully? Really? If you're I'm a disciple, maybe I'm thinking, didn't you hear the Sermon on the Mount? That, that adultery means more than just committing adultery? Looking, at lust, looking with lust, the same thing? Murder, do you have anger in your heart? They might have been thinking those thoughts like me. But Jesus doesn't confront 
the unreality that this man is living in. That he probably hasn't fully kept, kept all of these commandments. The young ruler was trying to live an upstanding life. And in that time, it was actually believed that you, you could keep the commandments of God that he has given to them. So Jesus doesn't even go down that road of confronting him. Instead, Jesus looks underneath all of that. And he, he knows in his wisdom, there's something more foundational and more pressing that this, this man doesn't understand. Mark's account of this relates a poignant detail at this point in the story. He says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He loved him. He saw past the silly debate of whether he had kept all the commandments, and and he saw what he really needed. And so Jesus responds in verse 21, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now part of me wants to jump into the story at this moment and shake this man. Are you kidding me? He he ran up to Jesus to ask him, what's the secret? And Jesus is saying, just go and sell what you have. Come and follow me and and you'll be in. You'll have security. This is what this man wanted. He wanted the solution. He wanted the answer. And yet, he wasn't ready to do that. The very thing that should have brought him incredible joy brought him sadness. He went away grieving. Why did he go away grieving? Because he was rich. He had a lot of money and he had a lot of possessions. Jesus, knowing this man, knew that there was something that he could not give up. It was money and possessions. Now the disciples were watching all this and probably were thinking something along these lines. That makes sense. Because if you've walked with Jesus through this time, you'll have heard Jesus talking about possessions and money. And how we shouldn't put all of our hope in money and possessions. And then you have the disciples who have left all their money and possessions in order to follow Jesus. So this makes sense. What this man needs to do is an act of devotion. One more act of devotion that truly shows that, that they're willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. But it's interesting that Jesus then continues talking about this situation. He turns his attention from the ruler to the disciples now, and he begins to share with them the realities of the challenge of rich people entering into the kingdom of God, and it shakes the disciples. Look at it. 
Verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with great difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. They were astonished. And that brings us to our third point, a sobering truth. There's a sobering truth here. Now, we don't have camels where we live, except in zoos. Um, So I have seen a camel before in a zoo. I I know that you all, I think, have seen more camels than I have. But from what I understand, camels are large. Needles are small, right? Just true, accurate. So thus, his illustration communicates this is very challenging for a camel to go through an eye of a needle, similarly for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, various commentators have offered different interpretations of what this means, but all of them point to the same thing. This is really hard. This is really difficult. And the disciples, in hearing this, were greatly astonished. They were greatly astonished because they still carried with them an understanding that those who were blessed by God had possessions and money, which is a common thing that we even believe at times, right? You see a person who is successful, and you, there can be an assumption that, oh yeah, this person is being blessed by God in some way. And so in their minds, they're thinking, wait a minute, if, if, if these people actually are far from the kingdom of God. Where where does this put all of us? This is is blowing our, our categories. Jesus was telling them something that we all need to hear. One thing that we can't do without can keep us from the kingdom of God. One can try to follow God's commands, try to please and glorify Him, but keep something back, something hidden, something that we can't do without, and we won't have eternal life. It could be a desire for power. It could be a desire for pleasure. It could be the approval of people. Here, for this man, it was money and possession. So let's talk about money for a minute. I'm a guest preacher, so I'm going to leave after this, so I'm just going to lay it out there. (laughs) Money is an interesting thing, right? Because it can be used for a lot of good things. Money enables us to provide for our family. Money can be used to bless other people. Money can be used to support the work of, of ministry, to enjoy the good gifts from the Lord. It can also, though, create in us an idea that we don't need anything else. If I have all the earthly things and I'm comfortable, then I don't need God. I'm safe and I'm secure. And that's what this man, I think, was confronted 
with. He had derived a sense of security from the fact that he had money, that he had possessions. Now, it's not that money in and of itself is evil or possessions are evil, but for this man and for many of us, I think, it, it represents, it shows us that there's a deeper problem. The deeper problem, the deeper symptom of a greater disease is this, our belief that there are certain things that we can find our joy and security in, and therefore we can't live without them. We can't live without them. There's a pastor and author named Tim Keller who, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, describes money as an idol. And the way he defines an idol is this, anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Idols are what our hearts crave. It's not what we say we believe, it's what we actually functionally do and believe. And we can worship it. Money and possessions can keep us from the kingdom of God, not because money in and of itself is evil, but because money can highlight that we find our security and our hope and our joy in something other than God. And it can create an illusion in our minds that if we have this, then we are safe and secure. Now, you don't have to be rich in order to face this. You actually could be the reason for your depression and anxiety can be that you don't have money. And the hope is that if you ever got money, then you would be happy. Then you would be secure. Then you would be safe. All of us struggle with this idea that Money and possessions will buy us, will get us security, hope, and joy. Now, money can also be a means to an end of something else, some other idol. Money can buy us people's approval. Money can buy us power and authority, influence. But it all underlies what underlies all of that is this belief, this lie that we need something other than just God. That's why it's so dangerous. That's why Jesus speaks to it. Because we can say, hallelujah, all I have is Christ and money. For this man, he couldn't release that. And so the question becomes for us, so, so, so what do we do? Should we just give, give away all our money and possessions? Just, just take it away from us so we don't have to wrestle with this. What? No, I don't, I don't think so. If you know your Bible, you know that Jesus doesn't ask every person to give away all their money and possessions. In, in Luke, after this account, right after is the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus only gave away half his money. So it's, it's not simply just give it all away. It's, it's something else. Jesus was calling this man to something else. 
something deeper, something more significant. There's a man named John Piper. You probably have heard of him. He's an author and a pastor. And he gave an illustration in a message a few years ago that I thought was very helpful in communicating what Jesus is asking of this man. So he said, imagine this man, and he is, he's holding his money in his hand, a tight clenched fist. Right? He, can't, he can't let it go. What Jesus is asking of this man is to open his hand. To release his tight-fisted clench of his money and possessions and let them fall. And where they fall is, is to the poor, right? Other people benefit from this money and, and these possessions. But there's a reason why Jesus asks him to do that. His hand is now open. And his hands can now receive Jesus. That's what Jesus is asking this man to do. Release these things so that you can receive me. He's asking him for surrender. Surrender. It wasn't just one more command that he had to do. He had done five of them. He just needed to do one more. No, Jesus was asking this man, he was inviting this man to say and believe and experience, hallelujah, all I have is is Jesus. Receive Jesus. Jesus. This man needed to be transformed by Jesus. Not just release all his money and possessions. No, receive the gift of Jesus. But this man couldn't do it. He was so deceived by his money and possessions, so twisted in his understanding of what he actually needed for life, that he couldn't do it. And his Jesus' disciples, I think, were facing that reality themselves. If this man can't enter the kingdom of God, if it's that difficult for us to actually surrender our lives to Jesus, they say, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? That's the right question. That's the question that you and I should be asking. That's the question this young ruler should have asked. We all should ask. Then who can be saved? Now you may be here and you're not a follower of Jesus. And you may be realizing, wow, there are a lot of things that I can't give up that I find joy and security in. And I see no way around that. Who then can be saved? But you might be a follower of Jesus, and yet you're listening to this, and God is speaking to you and and showing you and highlighting, there are still things I find a lot of joy and security in, a lot of hope in. Who then can be saved? That leads us to an amazing hope. An amazing hope. 
Verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And that is good news for us. Because in the moment where we feel like all is lost, when we see the reality of of the sinfulness and depravity of our own hearts and the reality that we cannot truly fulfill all of God's commands, that we, there is no way that you or I or anyone can actually earn our way into God's favor. We can't do it. It's in that moment, the impossibility of that moment, that Jesus comes in and says, but I will give you grace. What is impossible for us is possible with God. And that, my friends, is good news. Because it reveals the power of God's grace. So many conversion stories are in moments where it seems like the people are, are they have nothing left in their life, right? That everything has fallen away. Now, if you don't follow God and Jesus, you might look in that and say, yeah, of course they turn to religion because they have nothing else. But actually, the, the true reality of that situation is they actually understand what all of us need to understand. We have no hope apart from Jesus. And they just happen to see it more clearly because all of these facades have, have fallen away. But it's true for all of us. We have no hope apart from Jesus. And so Jesus is calling this man and calling us to understand and believe something that with God, all things are possible. And so we can continue down our path of believing that money and possessions and people and a spouse and a job will fulfill us. But Jesus in his mercy and grace will call our attention to the fact that there is something better. And so you can try and run away from the Lord on your hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost. But here's the good news for us, friends. In that moment when we are fleeing in the opposite direction is the moment where God says, I'm going to call you. I call your name. And I'm going to bring you to the cross. And here at the cross, you're going to see that Jesus paid for all of your many sins. And Jesus lived the perfect life that you could never live. And Jesus is now reigning in heaven as the guarantee of our salvation. That is God's mercy to us. When you see the preciousness of salvation, something that you could never hope to earn, that's the moment where you surrender. You gladly surrender. Because you've seen the futility of following your own ways. 
and you see the mercy and grace that God offers to you, that you don't have to earn this. Come into life. Come into joy. Come into hope. Come into an experience of God's love for you. And it's in that moment where we understand that, where we believe it, that we gladly give what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. Jesus. What is impossible on our own is possible with God. Now Peter opens his mouth and like normal convinces us that there's hope for us because he sure is stupid. He says, see Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus' response to him highlights the beauty of surrendering your life to Jesus. Jesus doesn't correct him, although he certainly could have. He could have drawn his attention to the fact that, Peter, don't you recognize and finally understand that this is all of my grace in your life? But he doesn't. Jesus instead tells him and the disciples of the incredible blessing of following Jesus. The incredible blessing that is found when we surrender our lives to the Lord. And verse 28 and 29, it highlights this simple truth. In surrendering all of your life to Jesus, you gain a life that is better than you could imagine. That's the truth. That's the reality of our life. Jesus not only gives us what we can never earn on our own, but this is amazing. He not only does that, he not only saves us, but then he promises that he's going to bless us for works we do through his grace. Only by his grace. That's amazing. And so the completed thought of this message is Jesus asks for our complete surrender for our joy. He does it in order to make us happy. This man couldn't believe that. He couldn't believe that giving up his money and possessions, giving up what he was holding on to, offered greater happiness. But that's what Jesus offers you and I. That's what the gospel provides for us. There is great joy in surrendering our lives to him. Surrender leads to abundance. It leads to an abundant life. Philippians 3, 7 and 8. This is Paul. He says, But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Have you tasted that? Have you tasted that joy the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The beauty of this is that Matthew highlights our future blessing. Luke adds that we will also receive blessing in this time. In this time. And I think what he means 
is that in this present time, we receive the blessing of a church family. All those who have given up brothers or sisters or father or mother or children, we experience a taste of the blessing that God has given us in our church family. A place where we have brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. We have a community that looks out for one another and shares possessions and meets needs. So it's a good taste. But it's not the ultimate taste. There's something that you and I have to look forward to where God will actually bless us for things that he gave us the grace to do. So all of this leads to a joyful surrender. A joyful surrender. A willingness to give up what we have. To gladly follow the Lord and sacrifice for Him. Because as the illusions of the futility of following our possessions or our money or things in this world that say you must have this in order to have joy and security and hope, Jesus tells us you don't need those things. You need me. And by my grace, and in the impossibility of that, you ever earning that, I've given it to you freely. That is life. And so you and I, while we struggle with sin, while we repent of sin, we can more and more and more be able to say and believe and experience, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Let's pray together. God, our response to this amazing invitation of mercy and grace, forgiveness, hope, and a future is what this verse says, Now Lord, I would be Yours alone and live so all might see the strength to follow Your commands could never come from me. Oh Father, use my ransomed life in any way You choose. And let my song forever be my only boast is you. And so, Lord, this morning we boast in you. And, Lord, we confess both our need of you, but then we also celebrate that you have given us life. You have given us grace. 
And so, Lord, we celebrate that in the incredible mercy of Jesus, we who were once far off from you have been brought into your family as sons and daughters, forever loved by our Savior. We thank you in Jesus' name.